Well, uh, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, we and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today. Uh, while you're finding it, if you are finding it, uh, let me give you a bit of the background. Uh, chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel is kind of a turning point in Luke's account of the life of Jesus. Uh, if you like, the first nine chapters uh, have been uh, answering the question, who is Jesus? Uh, the next nine chapters, and we're not going to read them all, we are just going to stick to Luke 10, but the next nine chapters are all about the question, well, what's it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What's it mean to be a genuine disciple of Jesus? Now, uh, if we were to read the first half of chapter 10, uh, we, we would see that one of the things that we are called to do as followers of Jesus, uh, we're called to be messengers, and we've been entrusted with some phenomenally good news, and we've been commissioned, we've been sent to go and help other people believe it. What we get in the next bit of chapter 10, the uh, bit that I really want us to focus in on for the rest of our time today, is the other side, the flip side of being a follower of Jesus. We're not only called to be gospel messengers, we're also called to gospel neighboring. Both are absolutely crucial. It's not a case of you sitting there kind of evaluating what kind of person you are and which one is your preference, which one you want to major on. No, they intrinsically go together. As well as being called to be messengers sent with the good news about Jesus, we are also all called to gospel neighboring, regardless of whether or not the people we are sharing our faith with accept the message. We're to be good neighbors to all. Now, at the point where we join the story, Jesus is embroiled in something of a discussion with an expert in religious law who wanted to test Jesus and presumably trap him. You see, Jesus was always welcoming people who disobeyed the law, people whom the religious experts viewed as out-and-out sinners. And because the religious experts didn't approve of the kind of people that Jesus was mixing with all the time, they wanted to trick him in some way into undermining God's law and in so doing try and discredit him. Let's pick it up in verse 25, Luke 10, verse 25. And we're going to be, uh, or I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, this religious expert is asking Jesus what he needs to do in order to be accepted by God. And because of the people that Jesus tended to mix with, the religious expert expects Jesus to say something like, well, if I'm being honest, it doesn't really matter how you live. Because in the end, God accepts everyone. But Jesus doesn't go that way. Jesus in fact, doesn't walk into the trap at all. Instead, he turns it right back on the religious expert and asks him what the law says. Verse 26, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? 
How do you read it? Now, there are at least two ways of answering that question. That the law could have uh, gone and got all of his scrolls uh, and read out all 700 or so rules. Or he could have given a brief summary. Jesus was after the shorter version. He's asking what the law basically requires. And so the religious expert gives the distilled down version. Verse 27, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just try and unpack this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart or your soul or your strength and all your mind. What does that mean? I was thinking about it this way. On the rare occasion that you find yourself at a complete loose end, you, you have absolutely nothing to do. Uh, you might think, well, I, I, I'm never in that situation. Well, try and use your imagination. You have absolutely nothing to do. Uh, no deadlines to meet, no, no demands on you, uh, nothing to look at, no reception on your phone, no Wi-Fi in the vicinity, no one to speak to. Where does your mind naturally wander? Where does it instinctively linger? I don't know, maybe it immediately turns to work or your study at school, or at university, or maybe not. Uh, maybe it's the uh, latest gadget that you aspire to own. Uh, maybe it's uh, finding your perfect partner. Uh, maybe your mind instantly goes to your favorite sports team or sports person. Where, where does your mind naturally go? Is it those things... Or is it God? Your mind is free from other things and immediately it turns to God, thinking of his character, thinking of his attributes, considering his will for your life, meditating on his words. Whenever your mind is free, you always find yourself thinking of God. Now, judging by the somewhat blank expressions I'm getting here, maybe that's not what happens. In which case, where does it go? Because where it goes would at least suggest where your heart is. That is quite probably the thing of greatest value, greatest importance to you. And so the first challenge is to love God so much that he dominates your thoughts. Whatever your circumstances, whatever you're going through, whatever pressure, whatever problems you're facing, you are so content because you always have what you most want. God is near. God is with you. And he's enough. He sustains you. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. That's a challenge. But that's only half of it. Because we're also to love our neighbor 
as ourselves. Now again, what does that mean? Well, I think it means meeting the needs of our neighbor with all the strength, all the passion, all the energy, all the speed, all the urgency, all the joy with which we go about meeting our own needs. It's like, be as happy for them when their needs are met as when yours are. When you try and break down all the laws, distill them right down, what they're really after is that. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart or your soul or your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. This is brilliant because on the one hand, Jesus is saying, the law outlines a way of living that is right. I mean, I think probably all of us in the room would would agree that's how we should at least try and live. It's only right that we should view God like that. And it's very hard to disagree that we should treat our neighbor like that. But Jesus is also saying that although the law is a way of life, ultimately it is not the way to life. You should live that way, but you'll never be saved that way. Because as hard as we try, as close as we get to the standard, we will always ultimately fall short in some way. Which is kind of what the religious expert was feeling, because we read that immediately he started trying to justify himself. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see what's going on? He's trying to whittle the thing down so it's ever so slightly more reasonable and doable. Because the whole premise for his life is that God will accept me if I'm good enough. And what the law demands of me is actually impossible to achieve unless it is redefined in such a way as to make it easier. But Jesus isn't willing to go there. He's crystal clear. This is how we are to live. But at the same time, if that's how we think we inherit eternal life, then we're absolutely crazy. But the religious expert doesn't like this. Any more than I think many of us don't like this. You see, our default position very often ends up being that we think we can earn our way to God. And so when we think we're doing well, we've we've had a good week, we think we've uh, kind of obeyed God most of the time, we've read the Bible most days, we remember to kind of pray uh, most days as well. When we've had a good week, when we're doing well, we can therefore assume that we are closer to God. But when we slip up, 
when there is an error of compromise in our life, when we feel like we're kind of uh, not living as God would want us to live, we, we feel like God could never love us. We can come to a meeting like this and uh, and be standing there or sitting there just feeling pretty excluded, pretty on the periphery, uh, feeling unworthy, feeling disqualified, feeling distance between us and God. And the only way around this is to try and justify our behaviour. And so we make excuses to try and explain why our wrong behaviour is in fact justified. Or, or we do what the religious leader does here and try and redefine what's right so that we can then make the grade. It's like he's asking Jesus, what is the minimum standard that will get me in? What's the minimum standard that God is looking for in my life? At which point, Jesus launches into one of the best-known stories in the whole of the New Testament, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, as we read this really familiar story, please don't forget the question that this story is the answer to. The question is, what is the absolute bare minimum standard that God looks for when it comes to loving my neighbour? That's the question. Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 30. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was travelling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Four things I think we learn here in this parable about gospel neighboring. Number one is mandate. Number two, it's magnitude. Number three, it's motivation. And then fourth, a few things about its method, how to do it. Let's start with the mandate. The question is, what is the absolute bare minimum standard that God looks for when it comes to loving my neighbor? And Jesus says, it's to meet the needs of the people around you, even people who don't believe what you believe. Because Samaritans and Jews each had their 
own separate religions. They're from different cultures. They believe different things. They went about doing things very differently. And each thought the other one was blasphemous. The other one was wrong. And Jesus is saying, I want you to look out there at the people you would ordinarily despise And I want you to meet their needs in such a sacrificial way, with such cost to yourself, with such remarkable love, that it will astonish everyone who sees it. That is our mandate. Each of us are called, if we're followers of Jesus, to meet the needs of the people around us, whether or not they share our beliefs. And with such sacrifice, at such cost to ourselves, that people will need to hear the gospel just to make any sense of our actions. This is the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a genuine follower of Jesus, feeding Sheltering, protecting the weak, liberating the oppressed. This is the essence of what it means to love my neighbor. This is what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Over in Matthew 25, Jesus describes how on the last day, on the day of judgment, God will be forced to separate the sheep from the goats. It's like there'll be members of the flock who very much look like sheep, but beneath the surface, they're not the real deal. And God will have to separate out those who claim to be believers from those who genuinely know him. Just have a listen to what Jesus has to say about how to tell the difference. Verse 42 of Matthew 25 Jesus says, for I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they'll reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I'll tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Now, that's pretty shocking, isn't it? Jesus is effectively saying, to mix the metaphors from sheep and goats to fruit, Jesus is saying, by their fruit, you will know them. Two pictures for you. One picture of a fruit tree full of fruit in the summer. The other one of another fruit tree in the summer with no fruit on it at all. Now, this isn't a trick question. As you look at those two pictures, which one would you say is dead? The one on the left or the one on the right? 
The one on the right. I heard the answer there. Well done. Okay. Which one would you say is alive? The one on the left or the one on the right? The one on the left is the one that's alive. Now, here's the question. Does the fruit give the tree life? No. The fruit tells you it's alive. And Jesus says, here's the difference between someone who just says they believe and someone who has actually experienced for themselves my supernatural life. A life poured out in compassion and service, especially to the poor, is an inevitable sign that you have actually, genuinely experienced firsthand my salvation. Might take a while to come through. Might come sooner, it might come later. But it will eventually always come. It doesn't give you life, but it shows that you are alive. So that's the mandate of gospel neighboring. Now I want you to be honest. Do you find yourself, even now, sitting where you're sitting, doing what the religious expert did? Are you sitting there trying to put some limits, some boundaries, some uh, restrictions on what this actually means because you're beginning to feel ever so slightly uncomfortable, dare I say, even slightly guilty? Well, Jesus refuses to let us off the hook. He shows in this parable at least three ways that perhaps we're tempted to limit the magnitude of what it means to be a gospel neighbor, and he won't let us do it. First way, I think we can try and limit what Jesus is calling us to do here is by limiting the who. Let's face it, it's natural, isn't it, to want to give and help and aid people who are like you, and who you like, and who like you. But Jesus would say, watch out. You mustn't limit it like this. And so he tells this story about a Jew and a Samaritan, two racial groups, two different cultural groups who were bitter, bitter enemies. And the whole hero of the story reaches right across an enormous racial barrier in order to help. Jesus is making the point that your neighbor is absolutely anybody in need. It's Jesus' way of saying, don't you dare try to limit this to a certain type of person. We must never limit the who. I think the second way we perhaps attempted to try and limit this is we tend to limit the when. I mean, we don't mind helping people when they are a victim of circumstances outside their control. But when we deem it to be in some way their fault... I think we can be ever so slightly more reluctant to help them, can't we? It's like we're way more likely to offer help to people when they feel that in some way they deserve it. They are worthy of it. Now in the story that Jesus tells, the Samaritan would have absolutely believed that the Jew deserved everything that happened to him. He might not have done anything wrong himself, but he was guilty by association. Just being a Jew 
was enough for him to be hated and despised by the Samaritan. And yet the Samaritan reaches down to him. Jesus really isn't permitting us the option of limiting the when. And then the third way. I think perhaps some of us are tempted to limit this is the how much. We have a tendency, don't we, to say, well, if I was doing well, then maybe. But if truth be told, I'm struggling to make ends meet myself. I, I can't afford to help people like that. Well, yeah, I've got some of the resources to help, but I'm so snowed under right now. I just haven't got the time to do it. I think Jesus deliberately puts this whole story on a stretch of road that everyone listening to the story would have known all about. Jesus didn't just say that the man was attacked as he walked along the road. No, he put him on a particularly dangerous stretch of road somewhere between Jerusalem and Jericho. So many people got attacked, robbed, mugged and killed on that stretch of road that it was called the Pass of Blood. Tells you something about how dangerous, how notorious it was. Now bearing that in mind... Why do you think the priest and the Levite see this man lying by the side of the road and just hurry along? I reckon it's because if you see someone who's been attacked and they're not quite dead yet, it suggests this thing may have only recently happened. That the attackers therefore could still be in the proximity. To stop could be absolutely fatal. And so... When the Samaritan does stop, he is risking everything. And again, Jesus is saying, I want this kind of radical, costly, risk-taking, sacrificial attitude to characterize your neighboring of others. In Galatians 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul it instructs those of us who follow Jesus to carry one another's burdens. And he goes on to say that if we do that, we will fulfill the law of Christ. I want you just to think about that. If in reality, we're never really expected to carry other people's burdens, except when it doesn't burden us too much then how are we ever supposed to carry each other's burdens? Well, when we say that we can't afford to give to help others, when we say that we haven't got the time, haven't got the energy, I guess what we're really saying is we can't afford to do it without it impinging on our well-being in some way, without it costing us something that we value in some way. Jesus says, let me tell you the magnitude of what I am calling my disciples to do. You are all to help people who ordinarily you would hate the sight of. You're to help people who you perhaps think have just brought it on themselves. And you're to help them to such an extent that some of their burden falls onto you. 
So that to some extent, you end up experiencing some of their difficulty for yourself. That's what it means to be a gospel neighbor. Now you might be thinking, well, put like that, how on earth do we get anybody to live like this? That brings us to the motivation. Now, uh, a guy called Tim Keller, who uh, leads a great church uh, in New York, uh, he's written any number of books. One uh, is called Generous Justice, uh, and he's brilliant uh, on this whole subject. Now, he says that there are only two possible ways to get people to live in the ways that Jesus describes here, and Jesus shows both of them. One is completely inadequate. The other is all adequate. One is completely insufficient. The other is all sufficient. First way you can try and get people to live like this is through morality. The secular version goes a bit like this. If you're a decent person, then you will be concerned for the poor. It's the basic idea behind things like comic relief, where you get a whole evening kind of being exposed to pretty shocking images of poverty and pain in other parts of the world with a kind of haunting soundtrack at the same time, and then they make the appeal for money. It's basically saying if you're a decent person, you will be concerned, and so you'll give. The religious version says that we must give to the poor because that's what God commands. It's in the Bible, so we must do it. But both basically motivate you with guilt. You have so much. They have so little. Doesn't that make you feel bad? Then give to ease your conscience. Now Jesus puts two characters into the parable who are extremely moral. A priest and a Levite. The irony is, it was actually their job to give to the poor. But Jesus is showing us that people who are expected to give in some way out of duty will only ever do so up until the point where sacrifice is involved. Morality alone isn't enough to produce the kind of radical gospel neighboring that Jesus demands of us here. Morality will prick your conscience. It will make you feel bad about how you're living. It will make you want to do your bit. But ultimately, it doesn't change your life. In fact, let me ask you a quick question. Is there anybody here in this room right now feeling guilty about their lack of involvement, their lack of generosity, their lack of concern for people in need around you? Anyone here feeling guilty? Number of hands going up. Stop. Because that guilt will not take you where Jesus wants you to go. Jesus isn't trying to make the religious expert guilty. He isn't trying to highlight how bad he is for not caring for the poor. Here's what... Jesus says it's the only way to get the power 
to live like this. The key to the parable, I think, is where the religious expert has been placed by Jesus in the story. Think about it. If Jesus had told the story like this, a man just like you was riding along one day, and in the road he stumbled upon a Samaritan. The Samaritan had been beaten up and left to die. But the man, just like you, came to the Samaritan's aid and nursed his wounds and paid for accommodation until he'd made a full recovery. Now I want you to go and do likewise. What if that's how it was? A man like you overcame his prejudice to help the Samaritan, the loser, the blasphemer, the oppressor. He overcame all the racial, all the cultural, all the social, all the class barriers and helped him. Now I want you to go and do likewise. How do you reckon the religious expert would have responded? I'm pretty confident he would have laughed in Jesus' face. I mean, are you kidding me? No self-respecting Jew would ever do anything like that. In fact, I would have gone back and trampled over the man again and again with my donkey just to make sure he was dead. Jesus, this story doesn't motivate me at all. But Jesus doesn't tell it like that. Jesus puts the Jew into the road, and the hated Samaritan as the rescuer. And here's the question he's asking. What if you were in the road? What if you were the one lying there, dying? What if you were bleeding out to death, and your only hope was an act of free grace from someone who doesn't owe you anything. In fact, owes you the complete opposite. What if that was the situation? Would you want grace? Do you see? If Jesus asked the religious expert to reach through all racial and cultural prejudices to help someone who in his heart of hearts he despised, He'd have been merely giving him another rule, another law to dutifully follow. Something else he ought to do. And if he did it, it would have been out of compliance rather than a changed heart. But Jesus isn't giving us a do it. He's giving us a whole new dynamic to live by. He's saying, what if you were shockingly saved by the grace of someone who owed you nothing but rejection? It's only if that happened to you that you would get up and start looking at everyone else differently. Only then would you become a radical neighbor. Only then would you start looking at the people who previously you despised. You looked down on them because they were the wrong race, the wrong color, the wrong background, the wrong class, and you would now look at them differently. It's like, I was saved by someone whom I had rejected and resisted. I have been saved 
by radical grace. And it cuts right through the moralism and the sense of duty and the condemnation and the guilt. And instead, it provides a compelling, life-changing motivation. Jesus is saying, you'll never be a neighbor until you get a neighbor. In other words, you'll never be a radical neighbor until you are radically neighbored. As Ben put it in the worship earlier, we will never truly be a friend to others until we realize that we have been befriended by God himself. It's the same idea. You'll never be able to have this kind of ministry to the people around you until you are on the receiving end of this kind of radical grace. Now, do you notice how Jesus has turned this whole thing around? Started out with the question, who is my neighbor? He flips it right around to the question of, who has been a neighbor to you? Listen, what I'm desperately trying to help you see today isn't yet another rule to live by. Actually, it's way more powerful than that. I want you to grasp the gospel, to to in some way grasp the good news about Jesus in such a way that it utterly, utterly transforms you. The gospel says that pretty much all of us start out as self-justifiers. Every one of us. But whatever you try and justify yourself with, if it's not God, ultimately it will become a master that will enslave you or beat you up. It will fill you with thoughts of fear and discouragement and condemnation. You, You will effectively end up lying in the road, dying spiritually. No hope. No peace. Really not a whole lot of joy going on. But the gospel says that Jesus came into the world. If you like, he journeyed down our road. And he owed us nothing. We owed him everything. He created everything. And we, for whatever reason, chose to ignore him and live our own way. And we've been trying to be our own masters all of our lives. But when he came to our place in the road, he saw us and he had compassion on us. When Jesus saw us, when he looked on us in our condition, he knew that to stop wasn't just to risk his life, He knew it would cost his life. For Jesus to come down to us and save us meant him losing his life. But he did it willingly. And if you see him, if you recognize him as your good Samaritan, as your radical neighbor, it really will change you forever. Do you see, the love, 
that Jesus is demanding here can never be the response to a command or a requirement or some kind of compelling sermon from the front. None of that's going to do it. It can only come as a response to free grace. And only when you see the true neighbor, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for you, will you be released to become a true neighbor to others. Let me try and wrap this up by helping you work through what to do as a result of this. Hopefully, you do want to do something as a result of this. Well, let's look at the method. Two things we're taught in this passage about how to go about being a gospel neighbor. Here's the first one. Learn how to see. Learn how to see. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, we're told, all saw the man lying in the road. But the priest and the Levite didn't think about him. And they did all they could to avoid contact with him. In other words, they didn't look twice. They looked once, then they averted their gaze. They looked away. But the Samaritan looked at him and felt his pain. We're told in the parable, he was filled with compassion. You do a word study. That word, compassion, in the Gospels. You'll see that perhaps more than anything else, it was compassion that moved Jesus to perform miracles. He looked out over them and had compassion on them. He, he saw their need and his heart went out to them. He saw the situation, saw the pain, and he was moved to help. Compassion, a huge motivator for Jesus. How do you go about being a gospel neighbor in a city like Sheffield with so much need all around you? Surely it starts by seeing the need. Thinking about the people around you. Having contact with them. And allowing it to stir compassion in you. And not merely looking away. Number one, learn how to see. Number two, learn how to connect the two themes of Luke 10. First half of the chapter, the message. Second half of the chapter, the neighboring. A whole bunch of churches which major on what Jesus says in the first half of the chapter, where he sends his disciples out to fearlessly proclaim the good news. A whole bunch of other churches, which major on the second half of the chapter and focus very much on social action. Jesus never actually presents it as an either-or. In his mind, they're completely inseparable. If we're to be... True followers of Jesus, genuine disciples of Jesus, we need to be both courageous messengers and radical neighbors. Both go together. Both are crucial. Now, I don't know. Maybe you still can't quite get beyond feeling guilty about this whole message. 
if that's you, if that's the case, I want to urge you to do what I think Jesus wants you to do with those feelings of guilt. Until you are crushed by the sight of the mercy and the grace and the sacrifice that God requires of you. Until you grasp how far short of that standard you fall, you will not be humble enough to receive the mercy and the grace that God sacrificially offers to you. Allow that guilt that perhaps you still feel to drive you towards the God of grace who looks out over all of us and has compassion where he sees our plight, sees that all of us fall short. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. He offers it to you in the greatest neighbor of all, Jesus Christ. And when you see what he did at the cost of his life to save you, and that really penetrates your heart, then, and really only then, will you be able to go and do likewise. Let's pray.